G'day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that practices what it preaches most of the time on the subject of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have a road test of the Mahindra XUV700, a medium-sized SUV from the Indian Car Company. And we have one interview but we range over a variety of aspects of electric cars from the defensive and outspoken comments from Toyota who appear to be behind in the development of full electric cars to some unexpected practical aspects of their uses. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 4th of November 2023. The Indian company Mahindra has had a use on the Australian market since 2007 It's one of the uglier utes with all the elegance of design as though it were made from two Lego blocks, one long one for the body and one small one for the cabin. Nonetheless, it has some passionate supporters for those who have been prepared to take on something away from the mainstream with a great focus on its ruggedness and reliability. The Mahindra Group is one of the largest federation of companies headquartered in India. It is apparently the largest producer of tractors in the world, but also has interests in information technology, financial services, hospitality and real estate. Having had the ute on the market for quite some time, they've just launched a family-friendly mid-size SUV, the XUV700. This comes soon after their launch of the more rugged Scorpio model. They are aiming at a low entry price, but good value for money. The medium-sized SUV segment in the Australian market is currently the biggest and fastest-growing SUV category and is packed with products from many other companies. Prominent models include the Toyota RAV4, the Nissan X-Trail, Mitsubishi Outlander, Hyundai Tucson and Kia Sportage. But there are some more recent players from China, such as Haval and the all-electric BYD Atto. Now, the Mahindra 700, as they want you to pronounce it, has two models. The base model is 37,000 drive away, and the L variant is $40,000. Both come with a 2-litre turbo petrol engine delivering 149 kilowatts and 380 newton metres of torque through an automatic gearbox, but only six speeds. They have an 18-inch alloy wheels, some bright colours, and if you look it up in the search engine, it describes itself as being technologically advanced, which can mainly be seen in the digital screens for entertainment and driver information. Looks pretty good in a typical modern sort of way, not revolutionary, but not bland. Inside you do sit up high, and even the passengers in the back noted that, which they enjoyed, and they had some pretty good leg room. The features that are common to both models include dual 26cm, that's over 10-inch infotainment and digital cluster screen, that's the one in front of the driver, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay compatibility, a reversing camera, a big sunroof, a feature that you would have to go to the top-spec models in most other vehicles. It has six airbags, tyre pressure monitoring system and a driver's power seat. 
They also say it has IntelliControl and co-driver Ergo Lever, which I presume are good things. In terms of driver assistance, there's adaptive cruise control, forward collision warning, automatic emergency braking, lane departure warning and lane keep assist. I'll talk a bit about that in a while. Traffic sign recognition and high beam assist. Now, if you add $3,000 to get the L model, you get the blind view monitor. That means when you put the indicator on, it gives the appropriate image, left or right, of the blind spot on the dashboard. The Koreans have had that for a little while, although in the Mahindra, it doesn't look quite as convincing as they squeeze the picture in between the two dials. The L model also has a 360 degree surround view, an extra airbag, a knee airbag, electronic park brake and telescopic steering. Now, I think that's very important for comfort. And it also has wireless charging and a, quote, vanity mirror illumination. I think that means a light. Incredibly, it has a built-in dash cam system, which I think is an interesting development that is a little bit hidden compared to a normal dash system. But if you do have an accident, it's something to remember. Missing from all this is rear cross traffic alert. Now, I mentioned lane keep assist, but if you do wander in your lane, you get some warnings and corrective input, but it is, to my mind, a bit late. In other words, it lacks lane centering. Nonetheless, better to have it than not. And also missing is audible parking warnings when you're getting close to other vehicles. Oh, and finally, there's no power tailgate. Now, things that perhaps need to be kept in mind is that it has three rows of seats, but like others in the medium SUV class, the third row is hardly usable, and if in an upright position, there is hardly any cargo space. The engine and gearbox are not class-leading, despite what the press release says. They have dual climate control, which is good, but doesn't seem to work as well as it might, particularly when the passenger and the driver set different temperature levels, although it seems to settle down after you've been driving for a little bit longer than I would like. Recent very hot temperatures make it hard to cool the car quickly, and it only comes in front-wheel drive. A couple of little annoying, if not perplexing, factors the indicators have an electronic strident pitch to them that both driver and passengers, particularly uh, until you get used to it, find a little annoying. The screen controls are different for different sake, I think, in some ways. just makes it a little harder to get used to as they don't have quite the same familiarity that you might be aware of. It's not a performance vehicle, yet it seems to pretend to be one with electronic features that can measure and show the G-forces you are experiencing, not something I want you to look at while you're driving, and it also has a lap scoring system. I can't see this being a vehicle that many people will take to a lap dash. And one other factor is they don't provide 
their sales results to VFAX. That's the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries compilation of sales month by month for the year. None of those are particularly worrying to people who might drive it, and I think in terms of G-Force and lap score, rarely use it. But the one significant factor that was disappointing was that quite often it starts out with a bit of a thump through the transmission. Gets better as the car warms up, but there are still times that you notice it. We have a regular feature with our road test now where we talk about PR hyperbole, that is inflated, embellished, exaggeration, overstatement. In the Mahindra, they quote the power figure to one decimal place, 1492 and they don't always mention that the automatic gearbox has six speeds. They say, and I quote, This transmission is mapped to perfectly match the power profile of the petrol engine at exhilarating cruising speeds. And it cruises quite well and quite comfortably, and passengers found that. But at slower speeds, you get the feeling that the six-speed gearbox is not quite enough, with the car holding higher revs, particularly in locations with a slight incline, and that makes you conscious then of the engine noise. They have said, and again I quote, it is set to stir the Australian market with its unmissable presence, spirited performance, sophisticated dynamics, modern technology and global safety features. I've driven the car around a track and there's no doubt that it is pretty good, particularly considering the price. Not quite sure it's unmissable presence, but we'll have to see how the sales figures go if we get to see the sales figures at all. They do also quote that it has a Powerfold ORVM, that is an outside rear view mirror. And they finish by saying that it offers class leading performance. Not sure, quite sure about that. I think the performance there is not so much the engine, but the ride and handling. So in summary, the vehicle looks modern, particularly inside. A number of people who were passengers in the car were quite happy with how it felt. It comes with some great features, but while Mahindra claimed that it is a five-star crash rating, that is from overseas testing, it is yet to be tested by the ANCAP procedure here in Australia which can be pretty tough. You might be able to buy the entry-level vehicle from some other more commonly known brands at around the same entry price, particularly by the time you consider on-road costs, but they would not have the same level of features. But the refinement of the technology, such as driver assistance, might be a bit higher. The reliability, longevity, service repair performance are yet to be determined, although some of the owners of their utes are very positive about their experience. It has an unusual name, and some Indian cars that have been reported from overseas are not without their limitations, but Mahindra is uh, striving to move and move quickly in the competitive world of SUVs in particular. You're listening to Overdrive. At the recent Japan Mobility Show, the Australian Vice President for Toyota of Sales and Marketing, Sean Hanley, has kicked off a bit of a war, again repeating some comments that he did say earlier about Australians and their use of their vehicles is not well suited to electric vehicles. 
a number of people have responded uh, very forcefully against this. But let's look at the nuances. Let's try and look at some of the detail and how much of this is really a marketing spin trying to position a company that is struggling to get enough numbers to sell, very successful in our market, but is not selling as many, mainly perhaps due to supply. Nonetheless, they want to keep flying the flag and they are a little behind other manufacturers in terms of electric vehicles. An owner of an electric vehicle and our good colleague Brian Smith, a transport planner of great experience, uh, knows a little bit about this factor and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. You've just had a power outage. Uh, yes. So there's a massive power outage near where I live and surrounding suburbs. And um, earlier this year, I had my house wired so that I could plug my electric car into the house and have the battery power the light and PowerPoint circuits in my house. So as soon as the power went down, we just pulled out the little adapter plug that goes into the car and plugged in the car to the house, pressed a button, and uh, voila, I'm able to talk with you now while all of our neighbours and everyone else in the extended area has no power at all. So we have power thanks to my car. And no candles. That's it. No candles and torches, David. It's a civilised blockout. And your fridge is still working. Yes, right. The fridge and freezer are on, the microwave's working. The only thing that uh, I can't power from the car because it doesn't give enough juice for it is the, the cooktop and the oven. But uh, the microwave works and the computers work and the unfortunately the NBN is down, but thanks to the hotspot technology, uh, I'm able to talk to you now. So I find electric cars amazingly versatile, David. Uh, my one, particularly uh, Hyundai Ioniq 5, allows me to, to – it has a vehicle-to-load capability, so I can run power from the car, uh, which is extremely helpful. It's important to look at all the factors, the nuances perhaps, the, the different ways it might be applied, not necessarily all at once and everyone immediately – but that it has an important point. Now, it, we know Toyota is not uh, leading in terms of producing full electric cars. There's certainly many more on the market, and the Chinese in particular are booming and, and pushing the price down, well, as, of course, is Tesla, uh, who's been at it for some time. I believe part of the attack was to say that the... Well, two things, that the Australian market is not, in the majority of cases, is not suited to an electric vehicle and better suited to hybrid. We live and die under that image of wanting to drive from Sydney to Melbourne, but that's not the full, complete, everything Australian market, really, is it? Uh, you're right, David. I think uh, Australia, along with many other countries, um, I think Australian Drivers, on average, drive about 30 kilometres per day, and it's quite rare that, that we drive any great distances. Um, and, and while battery electric cars may not have the range to drive the Nullarbor plane or to drive from Sydney to Melbourne in one hit, uh, a network of um, charges is being installed throughout the country under a national program to make sure that you can top up as you need. So... What Sean said was he thinks uh, electric vehicles are, are impractical 
for the vast majority of Australian motorists. I, I don't think that's really supported by the data. But Toyota, David, was an early adopter in hybrids, right? They, they released the Prius in like 1997. It was one of the first electric cars so it was a hybrid and they've stuck with hybrid and they've also been researching hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and i think they've taken a wrong step a wrong turn while they thought perhaps while everyone's looking at, at battery electric vehicles they may be able to differentiate themselves or kind of shortcut using um, hydrogen fuel cells because the potential is that the uh, petrol stations could you know be converted to hydrogen fueling stations and you might have the chance to refuel your hydrogen vehicle almost as quickly as you'd fuel your petrol car. Whereas with a, a battery electric vehicle, those recharge times can be longer. There's a little bit of the classic commercialism here, isn't there? That if you've got a product, be it beta recorder or a VHS, you market it as to why people should prefer yours. I'm avoiding the words, it is a better product. I'm, I'm avoiding those words. I'm saying that the consumer should buy yep. your product rather than others. In fairness, something, some company, for example, like uh, the company you've bought a car from, Hyundai, are doing both. They're doing electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles. Yes. And by the by, a hydrogen vehicle is an electric vehicle. It just uses a different power source. So it's not as if they are so mutually exclusive in terms of the technology, but they are, of course, in terms of how you uh, provide the power source, the energy to do it. There's this sort of negative connotation of battery electric vehicles that they take a long time to charge. And depending on the, the, the rate at which you can charge them, yes, they may take a long time. But it's kind of like having a petrol station at home. So, so I can be fueling my car at home, which I can't do you know, under with a petrol car, or very, very difficult to do. I can fuel my car while I'm sleeping, David, which again, the petrol car, the diesel car, maybe not really able to do that. So these perceptions of inconvenience are perhaps offset by these very real opportunities to, to be more efficient and to, to basically be able to fuel your car at home. And so across the country, it's important that people don't rule technologies out too quickly. So people are still kind of looking at hydrogen. Manufacturers are, are looking at the potential for it. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that, that um, uh, you know, there won't be hydrogen available, green hydrogen available at volume before 2030. And there's been an incredibly slow take up of, of hydrogen in this country. There's still fewer than 10 hydrogen fueling stations in the whole of Australia. Even in the US, you know, there's only a still relative handful of these things. So if you own one at the moment, it's not very convenient. You may need to drive a long way to one place to, to fuel. So it's a technology that it's as time has not yet come. It may be overtaken by battery electric vehicles, um, possibly, but I think it's important to to leave the door open for it. But it means then if you're kind of putting your eggs in that hydrogen basket, you may not have a product to sell until much later on. And there's there's a, a risk there. I think any company that's looking at hydrogen now, most of them have battery electric options available now. Well, of course, it's also that marketing thing. Uh, Elon Musk has said that hydrogen is a stupid technology. You would have to think that perhaps he comes with a vested interest, as we've really talked about, as to whether it may or may not do it. 
it is being applied in some areas, such as Tasmania, which is a confined area where three or four stations may be enough for a company to run a fleet around Tasmania because from Launceston to Hobart is within the range. But also, of course, you say charging it, that, that's fine if you live in a place that's got a PowerPoint. Yes. And so it's it, it's not an all or nothing, as we've said plenty of times. I interviewed Sean many, well, a few years ago now. Of course, it was in 2001 that they brought the Prius into the Australian market and he was given the role of uh, launching it. And uh, they thought it was really more showcasing than a practical solution. And they thought they'd sell only a few hundred, I think a month was the, the, the record, but they soon boomed with it. And they've taken that technology particularly well. It's just that it, it may not be enough to achieve the environmental and community values that we can get from full electric vehicles. Yes, I agree, David. Look, I think there's potentially a place for it, but and there's a lot of a lot of signal and noise going on in uh, in the industry around people, you know, choosing one over the other. Hydrogen has many difficulties associated with it. It's it's not its energy density is pretty low. It's a pretty nasty sort of molecule. You have to keep it refrigerated and under pressure in order to to fuel with it. But look, as you know, I work in in electric buses and. And if there was plenty of green hydrogen available now, it's highly likely that it would have been the technology of choice, simply because one of the big challenges with the battery electric bus depot is the infrastructure takes up a lot of space, the charges and the, the dispensers. And so in these very constrained locations, it might have been much simpler to have a fueling system that swapped from diesel to to hydrogen and to be able to very quickly refuel those buses. But we deal with what we have. Battery electric is proven. It's available, widely available and, and in widespread use. So any transition of, of uh, internal combustion engines to electric drivetrains uh, over the next five to 10 years is going to be focused on battery electric. Yeah, absolutely. There's no shame in that. And if you want to bet on that, that's your business decision. I was at a a meeting, a public relations meeting, uh, where Sean Sean Hanley was there from Toyota a little while ago now, about a year, but it's certainly when uh, the supply was particularly bad. Now, Sean's a very effervescent person. He's very excited and loves the industry and involved in it. But I did ask a question from the floor saying to him that I appreciated his enthusiasm, but he was looking a little tired. And I think that Toyota, who's at some stage, uh, certainly towards the end of last year, were drop, have dropped from about a 21 or 22% of the Australian market down to about 14% in the, in the, in the recent months. Now, that's a lot to do with supply, but it can also perhaps mean that there's a secondly trend in there that they might not have the product that the market is demanding. So I think there's a lot of pressure in the industry, and I think perhaps his uh, his frustration may have boiled over a little. Okay, yes, a bit 
a bit of loose lips, I guess. Um, mm. Toyota's not the only car company that's kind of, in a sense, missed the battery electric boat a little bit and is struggling. I think, you know, it'd be pretty rare to see an electric Subaru around. There's just plenty of other car makers who are, I guess, waiting and hedging their bets. But uh, mm. Toyota is a behemoth in, in our country, in car market, and it's just it's a little unusual and strange to see them making a misstep or what seems to be a fairly solid misstep. It's an ironic twist that um, they are talking about bringing out electric cars. There's no, no question of that. But given their criticism of it not being suited to the Australian market, one of the ones they're talking about bringing out is a Land Cruiser electric vehicle. They'll have to walk back their comments, won't they, David, about <laughs> ruining the weekend? Oh, that was ScoMo. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the idea that they're not suited to the great outdoors and our great nation, the Toyota Land Cruiser, an electric version, would sell like hotcakes, I would imagine. Again, you had the infrastructure to support it, and the great problem with a big car like that is that it takes even longer to charge. And I had a, a an electric Peugeot out which was a lovely car and beautiful to drive, about only 330-kilometre range, and it would take 100 kilowatts of power at any one time to charge by, whereas the really good ones now are taking 350. Mm. But it didn't matter. Most of the ones in my area, all, all the ones I could find and find that were available, were only 22 kilowatts. Yes, David, you have to take what you get i mean we've char- i've never charged my car at 350 though i can because i've never found a charger that in the wild yeah. that, that has that and the ones that i've dealt with uh you know 50 50 is pretty quick actually um i think i drove up to lawson in the blue mountains to the charger there and you know left home drove up the hill got there with about i think i still had 80 percent battery but i thought i'd give it a top up and it only took 15 minutes to top it back mm-hmm. up so you know, even 50 kilowatts uh, is pretty fast. 100 kilowatt for, you know, quite quick, I think, to recharge what might be, you know, a 60 or 70 kilowatt battery, kilowatt hour battery. But that then brings in how you're going to use it. You, you know, I've said many a time that the first question is not the range, it's how you're going to use it. And part of that use is availability of charging. Uh, that's a very critical point. I presume you will readily just charge it up overnight. You would readily yes. plug it in. If you've used it at all, then you would plug it in. Is that how it operates for you? Well, typically, I'll, I'll um, if it's sunny weather and uh, the solar panels are generating, I'll, I'll plug the car in and I'll charge it to 80%. That gives 20 to 80% gives you the fastest charge rate. It's, it's the charging rate is much slower from 0 to 10% or from 80 to 100%. So generally... 20, 20 to 80%, so I, I charge it up to 80 and then I drive it until it's down to about 20%, then I charge it. So I don't top it up on a, on a sort of regular basis. So if I'm down around 10 or 15 or 20%, I can plug the car in and within three days, that's only, you know, say about four to five hours of charging per day, my car is back up to 80 or 100% and then I can drive it for generally a fortnight before I need to charge it again. So it's not like a sort of a topping up thing. Oh. Uh, once you you overcome the range anxiety thing, you just, you know, that 80% of battery will take you a very long way uh, and plenty of days of use. Are you getting confident in that? Is, is that what you're saying about not range anxiety? 
Yes, I think um, most EV owners very quickly give up range anxiety because um, you've got, you know, there's a lot of data about the consumption rates and it's very responsive to the way you drive the car and how much regeneration you use. And you can, yeah, you know that you'll be able to get where you need to go. And uh, several times I've taken on long trips and, you know, I, I might charge it at interim location, but knowing that I, if that interim location is not available, I could still make it all the way to where I want to go, even with a, a very full loaded vehicle. Brian, very fortunate for you not to be relying on candles and that we're not relying on two tin cans with a string between them <laughs> in order to communicate because you're running your house off your car during your power outage. What a wonderful example, and I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's Brian Smith, who works for WSP, large consulting company, and it has experience around the world in transport planning and particularly now evoking things like bus planning, of which electric buses is becoming a bigger and bigger component. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.